Let's thank those kids again, won't you? Man, thank you so much. And leading that whole team. Did you just love it? I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I love that moment. Yes, I am. Well, welcome to Crossroads. Glad that you're joining us this Palm Sunday weekend. And if you're watching online, you're joining us on our online church, uh, special welcome to you. Glad that you've tuned in. Before I get into my message, I want to give you a brief update on our lead pastor search that's been going on for a number of months. Uh, this past uh, couple of weeks, our pastor search team had a phone conversation with Tim Gosha, who's our representative from our search firm, and he's very excited about the whole process. There have been dozens of applications uh, submitted for this particular job, and his job is to narrow it down, narrow it down, which they're doing, to about five to seven highly motivated, qualified people who would go, yes, I would want to consider that job of lead pastor at Crossroads. And so in about uh, early May, they're going to narrow it down to about five to seven people, and he's going to come here and present those to us, to our search team. And then they're going to go to even more work, looking at sermon videos, interviewing on the phone, those kinds of things, narrow it down to one to three candidates. Then we'll have even more conversations with them, probably some face-to-faces. And then hopefully, God willing, and the discernment process goes well, by the end of June, we'll have someone where we go, we think this would be, we're going to present this person to the church for your consideration. So that's the process. So keep praying. Uh, It's uh, really heating up, if you will, and uh, we're grateful for that. Well, I read an article this last week about an incident in the state of Oregon where this woman calls 911 saying that there's an intruder in her bathroom. The door's locked, she can't get in, and she can see under the door there's shadows and there's sounds in the bathroom. So the police come rushing over and three deputies with weapons drawn stand outside the bathroom door and order the intruder to come out. Nothing happens. So they break in, and they meet the intruder. A robot vacuum that's been going around cleaning the bathroom. And the report said that the Roomba was performing a very thorough vacuuming job. Good at gunpoint, wouldn't you? And it's unclear if the Roomba has retained an attorney for the break-in. So, do you ever jump to the wrong conclusion? You get this much information and you, your brain just goes here and going there is actually wrong. Right observation, wrong interpretation. And today we're going to look at several incidents out of Jesus' life during Holy Week. That last week where people jumped to the wrong conclusions. Deadly conclusions. Because they didn't understand the larger story. And on Sunday they're fully and joyfully shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the King. And they're spreading coats and palm branches down in front of him. And by Friday, they're seething and spitting, crucify him, crucify him. And they're spreading an ugly cross down in front of him. From cheers to jeers, from the penthouse to the outhouse, in just a few short days. And John comments about this adventure in missing the point in John 12. He writes, at first his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified, rose from the dead, did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Only Jesus has the big picture. And for three years, he'd given his friends and the crowds hints and clues about who he is and what he's really come to do. But it never came together for them, not completely. 
And Holy Week was perhaps the most confusing of all. Kierkegaard said that life is lived forward, but understood backward. It's only as we look back where we go, oh, oh, now I get it, now I get it. But life is not lived backwards. It comes to at us, it comes at us from the front, and it can be very confusing and even discouraging. You get laid off after 20 years of employment. How could this possibly be a part of God's plan? Your spouse looks across the table for you and says, I'm done. I'm done no more. You have another miscarriage. That new job you get didn't come, part of the benefits package did not come with a sense, deep sense of purpose. Your young kids keep getting you up at night and you just long and pray for the days when they get older, which they do. And now they're teenagers who also keep you up at night. And you long for the day that they would get older, and they do, and they leave the house. And then you long for the day and pray for the day when they would come back to the house and bring their kids so their kids can keep them up at night. We interview for yet another job and get another, I'm sorry, message. Or we pray for something, not even a very selfish prayer, and our prayer goes unanswered and unanswered, at least the way we prayed it. And during Holy Week, God was working. In fact, it was the most important week in human history. He was bringing the entire Old Testament story to a dramatic climax. He was bringing the Jewish people to a point of saying, this is the kind of Messiah you have. Is this the kind of Messiah you're willing to follow? He brought the disciples into the story in a way that they didn't understand for years, years. He was bringing death to a dramatic conclusion. And he was bringing new life to the human race in ways that then that when the things began to unveil that week, we would have thought there's no way possible that this could come from that. But in the meantime, it's a meantime. People expect Jesus to do this, and he does that instead. Way better. Only as we look back do we see it's way better. And today I want to talk about three expectations that will not only help us deal with the confusing events of our lives, but they will set us up for some terrific, ah, oh, oh, kind of moments. And when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that donkey, he played right into their expectation of what they wanted a Messiah, a conquering warrior king. Well, sorta, sorta. Expectation number one, we expect Jesus to defeat our enemies. The Jewish people were fed up with the being the political and military playground where the next world power would flex their muscles. For the past 600 years, they'd been taxed, dominated, oppressed, deported, enslaved by Assyria, then Babylon, then the Medes and Persians, then the Greeks, and now Rome. And they were sick and tired of Rome's puppet kings. These people were ready for a real Jewish king, like David, a warrior king, a sword-wielding, giant-slaying, jaw-busting, Rambo-type king. That's what they wanted. Somebody who could kick some Roman booty. They wanted someone like, like this. William Wallace. Who could give fiery speeches and fire up people for a fight. I am William Wallace. And I see before me a whole hillside of my fellow countrymen who have come to fight. Have you come to fight or run? And a guy speaks up from the back row, we will run and we will live. 
I stay, fight, and you may die. Run, and you'll live for a time. But dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the time from this moment to that for one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they can never take our freedom? That's the kind of leader they were looking for. And that's the kind of idea the crowds had when Jesus comes riding in to Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday weekend. They'd heard about the power of Jesus. Raise the dead, calm the storm, heal people. Imagine what he could do against Rome. Matthew 21 says, The entire city of Jerusalem was in uproar as he entered. Who is this? They asked. And Jesus got everyone's attention. And it's no wonder. Look at what they're saying when he enters. Matthew 21. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They're quoting two Old Testament passages that refer to the coming king. The Messiah, appointed by God to bring freedom and liberation. They even used the title, Son of David, which was code word for them as, this is God's chosen deliverer. This is the warrior king, the long-awaited Messiah. But he's already a little bit of a disappointment. I mean, he has no sword slung over his back. He has no ammo belts crisscrossing a chiseled chest. He has no tattoos. He doesn't even have a Swiss army knife. And he's riding, well, it's not a war horse. It's a, it's a donkey. And his feet are probably dragging on the ground. And while people are chanting the warrior king Old Testament passages, Jesus picks Zechariah 9.9. See your king comes to you, how? Gentle and riding on a donkey. Jesus said, I've come to bring Peace. You see, they want a supernatural demonstration of military force against Rome. Violent, bloody, and as painful as possible. And by the end of the week, what they get is a demonstration of military force against their king. Violent, bloody, and as painful as possible. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm with the Jews on this one. I mean, aren't there times when you just got, wish God would show up with some sort of weapon of power and just blow away the forces that oppose us, certain people, oppressive governments, killer diseases. 3.6 million Syrians have been refugees in Turkey for eight long years. Most of them in refugee camps because of a corrupt government. I mean, why doesn't God just do something about that? Columbine, Sandy Hook, New Zealand, Nigeria, sex trafficking. I mean, aren't there times when you just wish God would do something powerful there? Just do something, God. How many of you know someone who is, who's suffering from a debilitating or deadly disease right now? You know, aren't there moments when you just go, God, it would seem, it would seem so easy for you just just a little healing power here would fix this, would calm this. Number one reason why people don't believe in God is he seems entirely too weak or uncaring. And so our expectation, number one, is we expect Jesus to defeat our enemies. But Jesus defeated the enemy. 
The Jews thought Rome was the enemy, but Rome is not the ultimate enemy. No political system is, no matter how corrupt. There's a much more destructive enemy that we all have in common. Death. And that's the piece of the big picture that the Jews missed. Jesus came to take on death with all of, with all of its destructive forces and fears. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to destroy it is, is death. Is death. And I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but the death rate is hovering right around 100%. You have an expiration date printed on the bottom of your foot. You can't see it. And I'm all for exercise, eating right, staying healthy, staying fit, having health screenings, all of that. Maybe we're like Woody Allen, who said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. And when somebody asked him, do you want to live on after you die? He said, no, I want to live on in my apartment. I don't ever want to die. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he proved once and for all that death is no longer has the same grip on the human race that it once had. Romans 6, 9 says, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, the, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And this is the aha moment. Death is not the big bad boogeyman anymore. The ultimate enemy has been soundly defeated. The threat has been taken out of death. And Paul has the audacity to taunt death in, in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, Where, O death, is your victory now? Where is death, O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Christ, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't get me wrong. I'm no Pollyanna when it comes to death. And when someone that you love or I love dies, I'll be right with you crying. I will. My wife and I were invited to a, a celebration service of a really good friend of ours, this was a number of years ago, named Mary Jane Warden, who died way too young of cancer. And we got the invitation to the celebration service, and so we went. It was in Durango. And so we got there, and uh, the service was wonderful. We had meaningful people share about the impact Mary Jane had had on, their, on our lives. We sang some great songs had some wonderful memory sharing. We had, we had all the great food that Mary Jane loved to eat. But there was one thing about this service that took the whole sting out of it for us. Never been to a service like it before or since. Because sitting in the front row was Mary Jane Warden. Not in the casket, sitting in the front row. Alive, not well, but alive. Because she had had the idea, all my friends are going to get together anyway. I might as well be there. And so she was. She had her, her celebration service before she died. And I'll tell you, the sting of her death was taken out of that service, not only because she was there, but it was a visual reminder of what's going to happen in the future. Because Jesus rose from the dead. He says, death doesn't have to be the ultimate enemy. And death is the ultimate enemy, but it's not the ultimate end. And we can live on. And that's, that's the good news here. And that's the aha moment for these people. That's the aha moment. We don't have to fear death anymore. It's not the end. And through our relationship with Christ, we have already conquered death, just like Jesus did. And he promises over his dead body, literally, and over his resurrected body, literally, that one day, we too are going to get a new body. 
How many of you are ready for a new body? Yeah, I know some people who are ready for a new body. He said, you're going to get one, and you're going to live forever with him on a renewed earth that will have no end. And that's the aha moment that allows us to face the ultimate enemy with hope and without fear, with confidence instead of intimidation. That's the aha moment. Here's the second one. We expect Jesus to put things right, but Jesus makes us right. You see this in a single word that the crowd was yelling as Jesus rode by. Hosanna. It's a Hebrew word that we just pronounce in English, Hosanna. In Matthew 21, 9, they say, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. It's a very common word in the Old Testament used 136 times. And while it can be used as a compliment or as a praise word, it usually means this. Save us now. Bring some justice. Something's wrong around here, and you need to fix it now. And the tone of how you say the word Hosanna communicates the entire message. For instance, let's say that uh, you're running the bathwater for your child. The child's in the bathroom, and you're in the next room. And the child keeps hollering at you, and the tone keeps changing, and the tone communicates the message. So if the child hollers, Mom, it means... Maybe you should come turn off the bathwater. If the child says, Mom, it means the water's getting high, Mom. If the child says, Mom, it means the water's starting to run over the top. And if the child yells, Mom, it means the water's been running over the tub for the last 10 minutes. It's running down the stairs. It's beginning to, turn, it's beginning to warp the boards in your new, on your new wood floor in the kitchen. That's the tone of this Hosanna. Hosanna! Save us! Do something now! Do something now! And a Hosanna was a legally binding word. In Deuteronomy, it says that if a woman is being assaulted while someone is passing by and she yells Hosanna, that person is legally obligated to help. And when it's used in conjunction with the king, it's like a legal appeal to the king to rectify an injustice. And when they yell Hosanna at Jesus, they're basically saying, Jesus, go get rid of those bad guys and let us good guys be on top for a change. Hey, Jesus, if you're the king with any sort of power, go get those bad guys. And so Jesus does. He goes to get the bad guys. And while they expect him to go to the Roman political center, he goes to the temple, the religious center. And he begins to redefine who the bad guys really are. In Matthew 21, Jesus says, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This is Passover week. The whole focus of the nation was on this tiny little piece of real estate. And all the Jews were required to come here three times a year, and especially this week, Passover week. And as many as 500,000 Jews would cram themselves into the temple area. And Jesus goes right in the midst of that crowd and simply shuts the place down. And all eyes are on him. This would be like last Monday night during the overtime of March Madness final game where the champion's going to be declared and right two minutes into the overtime, the t all the TVs in the world go blank. We interrupt this program for a special news bulletin. 
and up comes this picture of this person. People would be upset if that happened last Monday night. And people are upset because the whole focus of this moment is on Jesus himself. And Jesus goes to the very spiritual center, the heart of the Jewish faith, the place where God and humans are supposed to meet, the place where people could experience the grace and the forgiveness and the acceptance and the presence of God, a place where everyone should be welcomed. And what does he find? He finds an injustice. And he says to this people, you're using God for your own personal benefit. You've allowed things to come in between people and the relationship with God. And Jesus says, and that stuff simply has to go. And he shuts it down. From Jesus' perspective, this is the height of injustice. He's saying anything that stands between you and me, anything between you and God has got to go. So let me ask you, what comes between you and God? Is there something between you and God today? You know, maybe it's just your busyness to make more. You're on that treadmill. One day I'll put God in the right perspective, but until then I'm just going to kind of keep him over here. Maybe it's an addiction an attitude. Maybe it's a question that you've had, this plaguing question, but you've never really take the, taken the time to sort through it, to dig through, to find a reasonable answer, and you're just kind of keeping God at a distance. Or maybe, maybe God has an answer to prayer, and you're just blaming him. God, you didn't come through for me. Maybe we're just distracted because we've just got so much going on. And Jesus comes to us this Easter and says, if there's something that's standing between you and me, it's got to go. It's got to go. And then Matthew describes a very tender tidbit about what Jesus does next. 21.14, the blind and the lame came to him where? At the temple. And he healed them. You see, these people were not allowed in the temple proper. They were unclean. They were malformed. They were dirty. They were the outcasts. And Jesus says, when I'm in the temple, you are welcome here. Come on in. And he heals them. Hurts, habits, hang-ups. Come on in, Jesus says. And not only did they experience the freedom of being healed but imagine that moment when they could enter into the worship of God in ways that they had been disallowed before because Jesus says, come on in. Come on in. You're welcome here. You're welcome here. And some of you have been outside a close relationship with God for far too long, for whatever reason. And Jesus is saying to you, whatever is between us, let's put it aside and come on in. I want to heal you. I want to touch you. I want to restore you. That can happen. It can happen today. And that's the aha moment. Jesus says, oh, I'm going to take care of the bad guys, but they're not who you think they are. The bad guys might not be out there. They might be right here. And Jesus says, I can deal with the bad guys. I can. And here's expectation number three. We expect to keep our options open. But Jesus says, make a decision. 
A number of years ago, Barbara and I decided we were going to redo the countertops in our kitchen ourselves. Want to test your marriage? Some of you have, I can tell. And you talk about options. Oh, my goodness. Let's see. Uh, do you want granite or fake gra synthetic gra granite? Do you want laminate? Do you want metal? The choices are, seem endless. And we were kind of leaning towards laminate. Okay, that's fine. Uh, what color do you, or what kind of laminate? Do you want uh, Wilson art, Bavella, or Formica? Sorry, laminate. You want Wilson art, Bavella, or Formica? Laminate. And they begin to show you the samples. Now, do you want standard, premium, or the new HD laminate? Whatever HD laminate is. So we were leaning towards laminate. Okay, what color? I counted 278 different colors, and that was just Wilson art. With names like Bella Venito. What color is Bella Venito? Or this one, uh, Night Passage. Nice color. There and back. You rock. I found one I liked. Black. <laughs> Barbara goes, no, we're not doing black counters in the kitchen. It took us eight months to decide we're going to do laminate. And then overnight, we switched, to, we switched to granite. I told you they test your marriage. I told the lady at Home Depot, you know, if you only had five options, this would, we'd have been done a long time ago. She just looked over her reading glasses and smiled. <laughs> Whether it's car carriers, phone features, meal menus, movie, matinees, iPod, iPhone, iMail, iFlooring, iShadow, iSurgery, iCare, I don't care. We like to keep our options open. But when we do, we postpone the benefits of what we commit ourselves to. And that's what's going to happen during the Holy Week parade. Because Jesus knows. He, has a, he knows the big picture. And during this Holy Week parade, this Palm Sunday weekend, when he comes riding into town, he knew that the Jewish people had tons and tons of religious options. And they were going to keep all the options open. That's what he knew. And he was deeply grieved by this. And Luke records this moment. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And here's the key phrase. Because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. God's coming to you, people of Jerusalem. And because you're so stuck on your own expectations, you're so stuck on your own lives, you're so stuck on your view of life and don't have time to think about what God might be doing. You're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. For three years, Jesus had been in their midst teaching and healing and giving people a taste of the life that could be had by knowing Jesus and being the kind of person he is. He knows all about the benefits of following him that are simply endless. And he knows the destructive tragedy that's going to happen in this life and the next if people choose another option or never choose about him. And when he sees the city, when he rides over the hill and sees the city and knows that so many people are simply going to miss it, this moment of opportunity is going to pass them by and thousands and thousands and thousands of people are not going to recognize God when he's right in front of them and they're going to miss it. 
And Jesus just breaks down weeping because he knows that there are some moments in our lives when we simply will not get another shot at it. Where I grew up in Albin, Wyoming, basketball was king. I mean, from the time I was in grade school and could lift a basketball on the playground, we were hucking it up at that big, tall, rusty metal rim on the playground. And basketball was it for our little community. The whole town would show up for every basketball game that, they, that we had. In fact, our whole identity was based on how well our basketball team did at the state basketball tournament every year. In fact, when, we were, when I was in grade school, uh, when our team did make it to the state tournament, uh, the whole school would shut down. We'd gather, those of us who couldn't make it to the game in Laramie, we'd gather in the lunchroom and listen to the game on radio. There you go. <clears throat> and I played. I mean, I played in, we had inter-school games in grade school. And junior high and high school, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. I finally made it under the starting five of the varsity team my senior year. And we had not won the state tournament all the years that I played basketball in high school. And we thought this was our year. We had an amazing team. We went 16-2 and two during the season. We only lost to Glenrock and the despicable Huntley Cardinals. I'll never forget that team. Ron Moore was the coach. He had like this uh, opposite of a mullet haircut, shaved with bangs right here. <laughs> and every guy on the team had the exact same haircut. And because we got second at the district tournament where we lost to Glenrock, we were on the same side as Huntley at the state basketball tournament. And so it's all set up. The semifinal game, who is it that's playing? The Alvin Wildcats versus the hated Huntley Cardinals. And everybody from the town came to the game. There was no people left in either town. You wanted to rob a community, you could just walk in and take everything. And the game was, it was a dogfight. Back and forth. We're up, then they're up. We're up, then they're up. And it's almost like you, somebody put their foot on the accelerated pedal at the beginning of the game and just kept shoving it to the floor through the rest of the game. By the time we got into the middle of the fourth quarter, the last two minutes of the fourth quarter, the pedal was at the floorboard and the whole place was alive. It was electric. And it was back and forth and back and forth. And this was our shot at the state title. And with 15 seconds left, we're down by one point. Barry, my teammate, steals the ball, passes it up to Val, who goes in for a lay-in. Five seconds on the clock. There's no timeouts left for their team. So their guard passes it up to this guy who I'm guarding. His name is Bruce Center. I hate him to this day. <laughs> he comes across the half line it's my responsibility to guard him. He gets across, looks up at the clock, and he flings up this shot. Desperation shot. And the game at that moment, in everybody's minds, goes silent and slow motion. And so I see this ball leave his hand. Spalding, inflate seven to nine pounds. <laughs> and it goes up. And it begins to come down. 
and it kisses the glass and goes right through. And at that moment, it went into fast gear and full volume again. And this whole sea of red just bleeds out of, the, out of the bleachers onto the floor, congratulating the Huntley Cardinals. And I just drop. I just drop. We missed it. We missed it. This was our shot, my last shot at the state basketball championship. Something that I had dreamed about from a little kid where I'd shot thousands of baskets and got better and better. Where I'd spent night after night in our barn in the cold with frozen fingers practicing free throw after free throw after free throw. All those practices, all those nights on those buses driving to games and back and forth. And it all came down to this moment and we missed it. And I wept and my team wept and the whole town wept. We missed the moment. And that was just a basketball game. Your life, my life, is not a game. And Jesus knows that. Life plays for keeps, and we don't get another shot at it. And Jesus knew that when he was riding into Jerusalem. And he knew there were going to be so many people who were just going to miss it because they were expecting something else or someone else and they were fixated on it or they were so busy and they were so caught up in everything else and Jesus said, this is your moment of opportunity. God has arrived on the scene. I don't want you to miss it and because he knew that they would, he just breaks down weeping because he knows there are going to be hundreds of people that are going to go into a Christless eternity and they're going to be going to themselves on into eternity going, I missed it. I missed it. I had that opportunity that one day. And I missed it. Are you missing it? Today, have you been missing it? And by it, I mean this freeing, wonderful relationship with Jesus that he awaits every morning to wake you up to, to me up to. And I want you to miss it today. So I just want to give you a moment to think and to pray. So I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads right now. If you're watching online, bow your head. I'm just going to do a little talk through here for a second. Give you some time to, to say to God, God, what is it for me today? God seem distant? Does he seem far away? Maybe, maybe it's that plaguing question. Maybe you don't think you're worthy of him. It's that question you haven't really wrestled to the ground. It's your schedule. Because Jesus is saying to you right now, this is your time. This is your moment. You have this one. I don't want you to miss it. And maybe you're saying today, you know, Jesus, I've never really come across that line. I've been coming up to it. I've been backing off. I've been tight roping it, but I've never stepped across. And Jesus says, come on across. You're welcome here. I want you. I want you in. I want to be in your life. 
Trust me. Oh, but I got all these. Jesus goes, trust me, I can answer your questions. You don't have to wait to have them all answered. Jesus, I'm so distracted. Those are the bad guys. We can deal with those. Jesus, I don't know you well. That's what Jesus goes, that's the point. We can get to know each other. We have a lifetime. We have an eternity. So if you've never stepped across that line, I'm just going to pray a very simple prayer. And maybe you have stepped across the line. You need to pray this prayer again. Maybe you would pray something like, Dear Jesus, I've been missing it. And this is my moment. I don't want to miss out on knowing you and the life you have for me. I admit that I've been doing my own thing, going my own way. Please forgive me. Please lead my, lead my life from here on out. I don't know what kind of life you have designed for me, but I'm trusting it's better than the one that I have. So from today on, it's you and me. And when I die, I'm grateful that you'll welcome me into this big, amazing family of yours that we get to spend forever with. Amen.